You're listening to Grow Yourself Up, a weekly mental health podcast hosted by Kath Cunahan. I'm a psychotherapist, writer, and speaker working in private practice in London. I specialize in the impact of our own childhood on our parenting and how we can heal and integrate our childhood trauma, wounding, and stress so that we can inhabit our full adult selves. Join us each week as we talk about all things growing ourselves up, how we can tend to ourselves in our parenting, generational healing, and overcoming the impacts of childhood trauma. Together, we will become more self-compassionate, connected, authentic, resilient, and heart-centered, so we can live our own full and beautiful lives. As a listener of this podcast, you're welcome to come over and join the Facebook group. So search on Facebook for Grow Yourself Up. It's a private Facebook group of all the listeners. And did you know there are journal prompts that go along with every episode? So sign up for the journal prompts on kathcunahan.com or go to my Instagram, kathcunahan, and sign up at the link in the bio there. And you will get my newsletter, Nurture, Heal, Grow, which contains all the journal prompts. Looking forward to seeing you in the Facebook group. The podcast is produced each week by the wonderful Audio Cafe. Thanks for being here. Hi, it's episode 78 of Grow Yourself Up. Thank you for being here this week. And um, it's December and um, it's winter here where I live. And I want to talk a bit about the upcoming holidays and um, ways to resource yourself and also to kind of honestly look at what might happen over this time. Because I think for many of us who are recovering perfectionists or still kind of deepen our perfectionism um, and hope to get everything sort of wonderful, there's always this sense of um, somehow this is going to be like a fantastic time of year or it's going to be really magical. And it it may indeed be those things. And there may also be um, so there may be more rage and more raptures. So um, I sort of want to have an honest look at what it means to be um, with your family a lot more and some um, some tools to kind of help with that. So many of us, when we do not have a wide window of tolerance and we haven't had our own needs met in childhood, we're much more prone to dysregulation. And so we are much more prone to be in our sympathetic state in our nervous system and and, and um, be in fight or flight or experience rage. And um, there's a lot of shame associated with being angry or being in a rage. But I really want to um, encourage you to notice when you get into a rage, why you get into a rage, and what are the typical circumstances. Now, um, I have... Um, I sometimes struggle with rage and anger, and um, I know that when I have periods of intense times with my kids and no support or no breaks, I'm much more likely to experience rage. So I am looking for looking like ahead to the Christmas holiday period and thinking, how can I resource and support myself? Because I don't want to be in a rage, um, even though I do then um, uh, repair and say, I'm sorry that I lost my temper. I'm sorry that I shouted. Um, I, I prefer not to actually have the rage and to kind of notice what I need to do to tend to myself. Um, many of us will have, because um, also we could look at rage as um, old anger 
And when we haven't been given access to the full range of our emotions or we have not had our negative affect supported in childhood, i.e. we haven't had those feelings of anger, um, any other feeling that was deemed negative, if we haven't had that supported, we would have had to suppress that as a child. So it would make sense that it comes up in adult life, kind of bursting into the present moment. So really be gentle with yourself as you kind of name that in your own life, if this is something that you also struggle with. So I am looking sort of ahead to this time and thinking, okay, like literally I'm looking, I'm talking about looking at my calendar, my diary, and um, seeing what we've got on each day. Um, not overscheduling, because that starts to stress me out and also stress my children out, um, to build in times where we just have days where we can go to the playground opposite us, um, days where there's time for me to go and either go for a swim or go for a walk, um, days where my husband and I could take a nap, you know, I mean, like um, to take turns doing that and one look after our girls. And also times to actively like be cultivating joy. I mean, joy, to be honest, comes often in the the small moments. There was a moment that I had with my kids and my husband, and I was actually just sitting on the stairs in our house, and they were sitting around me. And it was so beautiful and connecting. They asked me a question about something that was quite deep. And we had this such a beautiful chat. And it was it was literally a transition moment to somewhere else, or we were trying to um go upstairs for bath time. I can't remember exactly where we, what we were trying to do, but it was so connecting and so beautiful. And I thought, wow, this is, I could never have structured this or kind of constructed this actually. Um, and so I really try and deepen into those moments when they happen and allow for that. And so over this Christmas period, we've done, we are doing things like we are going to go and see Father Christmas or meet Father Christmas. We still believe in Father Christmas. And um, so that. <laughs> It'll probably actually be a terrible day. But anyway, because, you know, when you have high expectations of something, it all goes badly wrong. But sorry, and I've got a cough, which is why I sound so wheezy. Um, but that that is a time of like um, hopefully some family connection and some joy. Um, and we've got some other things planned, um, I think, like that. And then, um, you know, I'm really – I want to savor and deepen into and really notice the other moments of beauty because they are such a resource. Yeah, so so really take time to look at your calendar, notice. Um, you know, if you're already looking at your calendar and you feel stressed immediately looking at it, that might be a sign to go, okay, we've already got too many things. We've committed to driving to too many different people. That's too stressful. There's going to be about like 800 transitions in one day. That's too much for us. So how can I cut that down now? Really notice what you need, what's good for your nervous system, what's good for your kids' nervous systems, because there's much more, much less likely to be rage around if you are able to have the space and time to tend to yourself lovingly. So that kind of wraps into resourcing yourself as well. I want you to really have a think about how you resource yourself over this time. Um, caring for ourselves when we have much more time with our children is is different. As in, you know, you maybe you go to like a gym class or you maybe you go for a run or you go for a walk or you do a yoga class um, by yourself. Maybe you could do that outside the home and you may now have to do that sort of thing inside the home or go for a walk with your kids or go swimming with your kids. Um, and that's okay, but try and really make sure that you get in some movement to be to be resourced and some connection time. So um, like, for example, 
on the days that it's going to be very intense for you, how can you physically resource yourself? Might it be that you get out of bed a bit earlier and you go for a walk? So that's something that I'm going to do. I'm not going to get out of bed earlier, though. I don't like getting out of bed early. But I am going to, um, like, for example, on Christmas Day, we are hosting some of my siblings and their family. And I will be definitely going for a walk um, in the morning or like round about midday or something to um, give me, you know, to resource me and help me have a wider window of tolerance. Um, I've actually also talked to a psychotherapist friend of mine and we said we are going to call each other at 12 on Christmas Day because it's so nice to connect with someone who really gets you and really understands you. And when we've had our emotional needs met, we're less likely to try and get them from uh, places where we can't get them. Um, you might be having time with your family. It might be that your family are not able to meet your emotional needs. It might be that you constantly try and get them met there and it's disappointing and frustrating because it's not possible. So then if that is the case, how else might you support yourself? Maybe you can speak to a close friend or if you have a sponsor, your sponsor. Really think like in the in the minutia, how can you, and in the details of your days, how can you lovingly tend to yourself and be gentle with yourself and allow yourself your vulnerability and allow yourself to be supported and then um, reciprocate with a friend around that. So like, just think about, um, yeah, think about that. Um, and also remember that Christmas is one day. I know that there's so much that's projected onto the holiday period and there's so much that's specifically held on that one day. And I also do that project onto it that it's going to be lovely. And I'm also really mindful that it's one day and um, I'm going to really focus on um, cooking some lovely food for my family and um, trying to have kind of low expectations of what will turn up. Um, the last thing I want to talk about um, in this episode is about rupture and repair. So, you know, we are much more likely to have ruptures when we're all together a lot of the time. And in many of our families, what may have been modeled in childhood is that there are massive ruptures, um, maybe explosive anger, um, or it may never even get to the explosive anger point. The carpet might be lifted up and everything gets shoved in there. So as in um, everything might have been suppressed, denied, repressed, ignored, and um, anything that happened or any pain just kind of put under that carpet of shame and never talked about, or the blanket of denial and never talked about again. And so coming with that into adulthood um, is extremely complex because you don't have any practice then in conflict. You don't have practice in discussing things that have happened. You don't have conflict in explaining to someone else, when you said this, this is what I made up about it. Um, and this is how I felt. Um, so you may tend to approach conflict in a, you did this to me, and then you did this, and you said that, and it's your fault, in a, in a very kind of um, kind of aggressive, unhelpful way where you do a lot of blaming. And of course, you might approach it like that if you've never had this model. So, um, And this happens when we have not had rupture and repair in our own childhood. So our parents do something really important for us when they repair a rupture. And um, that, that the importance of that cannot be overestimated. Oh, sorry, is it underestimated or overestimated? It can't be overestimated because um, 
we all need to learn to have direct, honest conversations about how things impact us and to own our own impact about how we impact other people. But this can feel like terribly, terribly, terribly scary to the point that we just completely avoid it. And so I want you, because I presume there's no children listening to this as parents, it can feel very upsetting and we can feel ashamed when we shout at our children or we have a rupture or we're not as kind as we hope or we're mean or um, we lose our temper. But I want you to kind of think about, okay, it's actually beneficial to my children to see me and my imperfection and that I'm going to repair. Um, and I'm not saying like create ruptures for the sake of ruptures. What I'm saying is look at the fact that um, rupture and repair are really important and look at how from a repair there can be so much growth and so much learning about the other person. And crucially for our children, what they learn is that they can tolerate something negative from us and they survive it. So their resilience increases. But it's important. The repair process is really important because we need to take our stuff back from them, our emotional stuff. Because if we lose our temper with them and we don't then repair and apologize and say, like, I'm really sorry that made you feel so scared in your body. I understand that it was like, um, you know, your tummy was crunching or, you know, whatever their bodily sensations were when you got upset or you shouted. Um, if we don't take that back, they are left with a sense that they are somehow bad or wrong. And so repair is a is a kind of a crucial thing where we own our stuff and we keep in 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 twelve step um language there's always this saying um of keeping our side of the street clean. We keep our side of the street clean because we take back our stuff, we own what we did, and we do not make our children wrong so i'm there's a lot more now um around rupture and repair and um I'm going to go into why it's important, a little bit of the history about how this developed and ways that um, that you may feel impacted in adulthood when you haven't had this in childhood. Many of us can struggle with um, the process of conflict in our relationships and negotiating what we want and need and um, just negotiating general life challenge with our adult partners and actually um, this is deeply related to this process I want to talk about, which is rupture and repair. So rupture and repair in childhood. So I'm going to give you a little bit of history, talk about why it's so important, talk about where these ideas come from. And then um, I'll do a follow on episode about how we can cre create more relational safety in our adult love relationships and indeed actually in any relationship. So I imagine that if you're on social media, I'm sure you've heard this term rupture and repair. It's used a lot to talk about how we as parents can repair with our child after we've been, um, if we've shouted or if we've been unkind or we misattuned or we couldn't respond when they really needed us. It's, it's a process of, um, uh, acknowledging what happened, saying we're sorry, you know, if we shouted at them and, um, really allowing them to feel connected and seen. And it's a, it's a huge part of good enough parenting because we cannot be perfect as, like, as I'm sure all of you know, <laughs> even though many of us want to be perfect and it feels like imperative because it's a safety thing from childhood that we are perfect. Um, our adult selves and our, our kind of our, our brains know that we cannot be perfect and, um, rupture and repair is, is one of the ways that we, um, 
really kind of embody good enough parenting because by definition, good enough parenting means there will be moments of fighting, rupture, shouting, um, you know, all of that sort of stuff. And then as adults, we take ownership for that in all relationships, actually, but mostly important, most importantly with our children, the responsibility for the repair is, is with us. And, um, it might feel that it's it, to some, sometimes it feels like, uh, it's a way to kind of deal with guilt. If we've had break in our connection that luckily there's rupture and repair, but actually the um, the importance of it is far reaching and it goes right into the child's adult lives. So um, really creating a space in your family now for that process of rupture and repair to, to kind of language what goes on, to explain how um, what's going on for you sometimes if you lose your temper is really important in, in ways that um, may, may not be immediately obvious. And so I'm going to go into some of that. So this term rupture and repair um, was coined by Beatrice Beeb and Frank, Frank Lachman. They've done a lot of research, a lot of infant research and a lot of research on mother-infant dyads. Um, I'm also going to draw here on the work of Donald Winnicott and Ed Tronick. So and Ed Tronick actually uses a different term. Um, he uses the term disruption and repair. But um uh, Beeb and Lachman, they are the ones who coined um, rupture and repair. So there's a long tradition um, in the psychoanalytic, tr- uh, psychoanalytic literature around this because a lot of the researchers were both uh, psychologists and psychoanalysts. So they've done a lot of research in the space around um, uh, what goes on in mother-infant diets. And um, some of the most important work in the space comes from um, Ed Tronick, who did the still face experiment in 1970. And I shall explain to you a little bit what the still face experiment is. So the still face experiment was done in 1970 by Ed Tronick, and it showed how strong our need for connection is. And it gives a, an insight into how a parent's reaction to their child, to a baby, uh, impacts the emotional development of a baby. And the experiment told us what happened when connection does not occur. So you can actually see lots of examples of this on the internet. It's quite, um, when there's no connection, it's really quite devastating to actually watch. So it involved a, a baby and a mother sitting face to face and playing. And um, in the initial parts of it, you see the mother engaging with her baby and smiling um, so the mother's engaging and then the baby's responding by smiling, making movements, um, sounds, and there's eye contact. And in the second part of the experiment, you see the, the mother engage in um, still face, so the name of the experiment, where she keeps her face still and um, she doesn't respond. Uh, so there's a lack of responsiveness for two minutes. And... Um, after two minutes, uh, there's a repair. So the mother re-engages with her child and she um, plays and smiles and gives other, gives some nonverbal cues. And what, what was really key about this experiment is how the baby's behavior changed when the mother was on, was um, unresponsive. So the baby goes from smiling and making sounds and really being engaged and making eye contact to being, um, looking confused. And, um, she tries to like draw her mother back in. So by kind of pointing and engaging in play and trying to have eye contact. And um, 
the mother is continuing to not engage because we're still in this two-minute period of no responsiveness. And um, and the baby tries, you know, it's like the baby pulls out its bag of tricks to um, re-engage the mother. And then um, a frustration and almost a bit of desperation sets in for the baby and the baby um, starts to cry. Um, and then when the, when the mother re-engages after the tumor is at, um, period, then the baby returns to, you can see the baby's re- relieved and they return to, um, smiling and, and engaging. But, um, what was so powerful about that was you, was, was we learned about the baby's power to re-engage and how devastating the impact of, um, of even this relatively short time period of two minutes. So that was, um, a short, very short summary of the, um, the still face experiment. And you can go, as I said, you can go and look on YouTube um, if you want to see actual recordings of this experiment. The, so that was by um, Edtronic. And then later experiments also did this, um, later research looked at this um, experiment with both toddlers and also with fathers, and they found similar results. So why this research is really, really important is that um, what Etronic initially showed was that uh, good enough parenting looked like being attuned about uh, 30% of the time. And the rest of the time, uh, we were coming back into connection and repairing dis- like moments of disconnection. So it um, that can kind of provide us with a sense of relief that, um, and it's really an antidote to perfectionism, actually, that we cannot ever be attuned 100% of the time. And this has got really important implications for adults, because we need to learn to tolerate um, moments of mismatch. And it starts from really, really, really early on. So um, uh, Winnicott talks about this process of frustrating the baby and how um, as the baby grows up, initially, the baby is totally, um, it's like the baby is the mother's world. Um, or caregiver's world. I'm, I'm going to use the word mother for the purposes of this. Um, and, and the, you know, the mother tends to like meets all the baby's needs. Uh, as soon as their baby's got a dirty nappy, she changes the nappy and um, feeds it. And then over time, um, the baby learns to tolerate waiting for a bit more. So, um, the mum will, kind of say, okay, I'm going to get your bottle or I'm just um, getting, I'm just getting myself a glass of water and I'm going to come and breastfeed you and, and use her voice um, in a kind of sing song prosody to soothe the baby. And the baby learns over time that they're not the center of the world. And they start, it's, it's the beginning of the process of, um, of individuation and separation because they, they come to see that the mother is a different person and um, that that they each exist, they exist in each other's brains, but they have separate brains and separate separate experiences. But early on in the baby's life, they can't tolerate not being met immediately. But this process of um, frustration that happens as we grow up um, helps us learn to um, tolerate that. And if we can't tolerate that, then as adults, we kind of fall apart at any sign of stress. So let's talk a bit about why this process is so important. It's not only important for your child now because they get to feel seen and um, really acknowledged when you repair, but it's also really important for your child as an adult. And 
as you listen to this, you may observe, because this is what I see clinically a lot, that you didn't have any rupture and repair as a child. And so consequently, now you find it really difficult to engage in discussions or conflict or asking for what you need. And so this is kind of a multi-pronged thing because it's very painful to hear about what we didn't get as children and how that now uh, really complicates our adult lives. Um, but I want to give you some hope around this because this is something that we can learn. So I'm going to tell you why this is important for your child and their future, and you'll be able to understand why it's hard for you now if you didn't get this. I hope that makes sense. Okay. So there's a lot of stuff. Um, well, historically, there's been a lot of stuff, and actually still people say this. Um, they say children are resilient. They'll get over this. They are just resilient naturally. That's not true in any way. Children are not just resilient. They, um, you know, because often people say, oh, they'll get over this or they won't remember this. Um, and that's absolutely not true because resilience is something that is built in relationship. It's not, we don't just, we're not inherently resilient. Often if we, if we're looking at children and we're saying they're resilient, well, actually they're probably shut down or they, um, are, have learned that they, they can't get support. So they appear to be resilient, but true resilience is really rooted in this process of, um, of actually in rapture and repair, learning to tolerate some negative things in relationship where we are seen and held and noticing that we can manage that. So for example, the baby notices, um, if the mom is, is, um, has to go to the loo or get herself a drink before she sits down to breastfeed, the baby will survive the stress of that waiting, waiting for their milk. And they start to to organize around the fact that, oh, I can manage that. And this is not cognitive, but this is um because they don't have that brain capacity yet. But it's it's laid into their system of I can manage this. I'm safe enough to wait. I can tolerate the stress. And this is really, really important because distress tolerance is a really, really important part of being an adult that we don't flip out at everything that causes us distress. But many of us, because we haven't had practice at tolerating distress, we do. So we get very anxious or feel like we immediately need to take action. And part of, of, of really growing ourselves up when we haven't got our needs met in childhood is learning to tolerate distress, not necessarily needing to take immediate action and learning that through the process of allowing ourselves to tolerate the stress, our answers or what what um what we might need to do will become clearer. Um, whereas if we can't tolerate distress, we just do some sort of knee jerk action, and then um, that might not even be what we need to do. So so this so going back to the main point is that resilience is rooted in the process of um, the small frustrations, and again that word frustration comes from Winnicott that occur in the mother baby relationship all the time. And that's a, it's a process that builds because, um, your toddler can tolerate more frustration than your baby can toddler. So, sorry, then can tolerate. So, um, with your toddler, they might say, please come and play, please come and build Lego with me, or, uh, please can we go and do, I don't know, something outside with cornflower or something. Um, and you would say, no, sweetie, I can't come and play with you now. You need to wait for 15 minutes or I'm doing something else or I'm just sitting on the sofa for 15 minutes. I'm lying down. And then as soon as I've had my rest, um, we can go and play. And the toddler is likely to be able to tolerate that. Perhaps 15 minutes is a bit long initially, but, um, you know, you can use some verbal, um, 
reasoning with them. Again, not that much reasoning capacity with toddlers, but you can keep on saying, oh, I know it's really frustrating that I'm lying down to kind of um, help them tolerate that they can't get what they want immediately. And then that process continues with older children. Um, they learn to tolerate a bit more and they learn that they can manage that. It's key that we learn we can manage our own distress or our own not getting what we want um, in the confines of this relational safety with our family of origin. But many of us just did not get that at all. Um, and I'm not talking here about tolerating abuse or things that are bad. That's not at all what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the the um, everyday frustrations that happen in relationships because there's naturally a mismatch with people because we all on our own agenda and own path. So resilience is is as is adult resilience as adults and as children is actually rooted in this process. Um, another point is that we need we we all have muscles, um, emotional muscles. Like when you start to practice compassion, it's not easy initially. You might think, "Oh, I'm letting myself off the hook here with all this compassion," um, and you have to really practice to see that compassion is really helpful. When you with stress, we don't we're not able to tolerate stress if we haven't built up a muscle to tolerate stress. And so actually, in order to tolerate stress, we need some stress in our lives. And um, there's lots of research that shows that like, we increase our stress muscle when we learn to deal with stress. Not huge. Um, in, um, in Bruce Perry's book, the book, um, what's it called? The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog, he talks about how um, uh, steady doses of like regular stress help us grow our ability to deal with stress. Whereas if you have a lot of um, like amounts of stress that you don't know about and that are very random, that really stresses your system and you don't build up a um, an ability to deal with the stress. And so there's lots of research into, into that um, stress and about, um, you know, consistent small amounts of stress that are regular that help us build our tolerance for stress. And then Ed Tronick talks about how um, he labels it um, good, bad, and ugly stress. And he says that we need some good stress to deal with the bad stress. And if we've had enough good stress and we've kind of really built up our ability to deal with stress, then when ugly stress comes along, like, you know, as as, as adults, you'll know about ugly stress, like a big um, you know, the death of someone, a divorce, um, something feels really upsetting with your child, like more like one of uh, one off events, we much more able to tolerate that because we've practiced um, dealing with everyday stresses, which he labels good stress. But so we have to be able to tolerate the stress, but this is dependent on us having multiple opportunities for rupture and repair. And so you can see that if we don't have these opportunities for rupture and repair, we don't have the ability to learn to tolerate um, relational stress and kind of know that we can survive that and it's okay. So many of us had caregivers who overwhelmed us with their own angst, with their own addiction issues, with anxiety or their needs. You know, if you've got a mother who who's um, what we would term a narcissistic mother who can't really see you as a separate person and just thinks that you're there to meet their needs. And this is often subconscious and it's a pattern that's a generational pattern. Um, then you, you don't have any way to kind of um, engage in these processes of rupture and repair because um, that's never allowed to arise. And so anytime we are overwhelmed by our, our parents or caregivers, um, 
stuff. We don't really have any real opportunity to learn about rupture and repair. We just responded. We just learned to respond to the chaos of what's going on around us. And we often do this by being good or quiet, growing up, um, being precocious beyond our years, or we go into a place of shutdown and we deal with the chaos like that. And that's a real um, sort of, uh, that's a sadness, a real sadness for us, because really we learn um, a lot about other people through this ability to keep on having um, mismatches and ruptures and to um, to then repair. We learn about, um, it, it really builds intimacy. And when I say intimacy, I mean, I don't mean sex. I mean the ability to know more about your people. And so we need that process of kind of discussing back and forth um, to build intimacy and also to build the ability to be self-regulated around this because many of us do not have enough relational safety to actually bring up difficult issues in our relationship because it terrifies us. And we don't think we'll get what we need and we don't think we can tolerate it. And um we we may see rupture as really bad because we're terrified of the conflict and there's been no modeling of, oh, this is normal. Oh, yes, this is how we do relationships. We say what we both need and then we try and um, figure it out. But because rupture has been um, catastrophic or terrifying in our families often, so shouting, um, violence, um, no resolution and no kind of um, uh working to calm, like the adults working to calm themselves so that we can have um, discussions, we we just associate any um, rupture with whatever went on in our family of origin. Um, and equally, it's if, if, if rupture was just squashed or not discussed, so no, dis, there was no discord allowed or no um, kind of no acknowledgement of difference or no trying to work through difference, then we don't have a model to do that. And so it's really helpful for you as as you parent um, or if you're not a parent, as you look at your own adult um, relationships with your friends, your loved ones, everyone, to start practicing um, being yourself, to start practicing noticing what it is you want to talk about, to notice what immediately comes up. Because if um, if you immediately get really scared in your body and think, oh, I can't bring this up, that's a sign that there's a lack of safety for you around this and it'll definitely relate to your childhood. You know, if experience of repair is lacking, we we may literally feel panicked and abandoned and very avoidant around any conflict because of the fear um, that dominates. So if, if we have a fear and a lack of trust dominating our understanding of ourselves and others, then there's no, there's, there's, there's no net of relational safety to allow for this process. So you may be both scared of yourself and your responses if you maybe tend to go to rage or to shut down. Um, and you may be terrified of your partner, or your friend's responses, because there's not enough safety within the relationship and there's a lack of confidence um, and trust for self around actually being able to deal with um, what comes up. And to kind of negotiate through it. And then that fear. So when there's a lot of terror or fear around, it often shows that our inner child is really present. And so it might feel, or it might be that as soon as you think about, as soon as you contemplate dealing with challenge with a partner, you actually just feel totally shut down with fear. And I want to say that that makes sense because if you have not had um 
experiences of having ruptures repaired and have it become like a normalized part of everyday living, which can be tolerated and dealt with and can even be welcomed in, um, then th- this process is going to feel really scary. So in the next episode, I'm going to talk about more about how we can recreate relational safety more in an adult um uh, like in our adult relationships, it might not be the next episode that's released, but I will do more on this around, um, you know, how can we start to have these conversations? Um, like how can we actually welcome in rupture in order to get to know our people better, in order to deepen our love and in order to deepen our intimacy, in order to really let ourselves be seen? Because the thing is, if we are running away from, um, any, any ruptures or avoiding conflict, we're actually not letting ourselves be seen. And we, um, we're not letting ourselves be known, but being fully known may never have happened for you as a child, or you may have been shamed or mocked, or, um, uh, you may just have to have like lived with your false self. And so now we're really trying to let ourselves be seen, um, to be loved and to learn to tolerate it, tolerate it if there's misunderstanding or if there's, if we don't immediately get what we want or need in the conversation, because these type of conversations are not neat to start off with. It's, it's a messy, messy iterative process. So, you know, even saying that to each other, if there's someone you want to have a discussion with, with, you know, discussion about something, even saying that to each other, okay, we maybe not don't really have the skills in the space that much, but we really are committed to a loving relationship and we want to work through this. So let's try. Um, I hope this leaves you with a hope and that um, all of these things can be worked on. So know that when you practice a process of rupture and repair with your children, it's life changing for them, actually. It, it contributes to their own resilience in adulthood. And um, as you can hear, lots of other things. Um, I, with my own girls, we, our twins fight quite a lot and I'm really trying to help them, um, with the process of collaboration because their fights kind of go in spirals. They, um, they are very focused on having the same amount of things or the same. It feels like for twins, there needs to be like evenness, but then. I think sometimes just in a bid for connection, they might kick each other on the sofa or do something, which then starts a fight, or they argue about what they want to watch on TV. And I'm really trying to help them notice the circular nature of things about, oh, what happened? Why did you kick her? What was going on there? Do you know? And often they don't know, but um, I mean, they're only seven, so how would they know this? But I help them with... um what's going on here? Did you feel left out? One of them sometimes knocks over the other one's toys when she's actually feeling left out. So I tried to help her with like, okay, sweetie, what is it you actually wanted to say, please play with me. And, um, and there's so much opportunity in noticing that helping your children with, with their own interactions around rupture and repair. And, um, and this obviously won't happen all the time because sometimes I feel so enraged by their fighting when I'm trying to cook their supper and they're like fighting on the sofa and I can't leave whatever I'm cooking on the stove, then I just shout. So, I mean, none of this is a perfect process, but um, I use this word collaborate and I say to my children, okay, how how can we collaborate here? What can we do here? Um, like when we're choosing an episode of TV, they often argue a lot and I'm like, okay, let's collaborate. What would you both like to watch? Let's find something. Um, and this is really quite a joyful process because you'll notice your children, when you use words like this, they use words like that back on me now. And it just, I want to laugh and just hug them with so much joy sometimes. Anyway, um, 
you know, this rupture and repair, there might be a lot of that going on in your house at the moment because you might be feeling really frazzled from having so much contact with your people with not much support. So really go gently on yourself. I hope this episode has been useful. And um, know that this is really a wonderful skill that you're helping your children with and um, and really embracing this good enoughness is just, there's so much beauty in it. There's so much beauty. So don't berate yourself for not being perfect. Instead, look at all the wonderful things that are coming from this, um, from learning to repair rupture and actually learning to rupture is really important. Okay, take good care. You've been listening to Grow Yourself Up, hosted by Kath Cunahan. We'll be back next week with a new episode supporting you to better understand and tend to yourself for more heart-centered, connected, authentic, and resilient living.